This morning we met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. I would remind you we do have our prayer list over here to my left. Uh, Feel free to get you a copy and use it. But let's begin this morning with uh, silent prayer. You think about our country and the needs of those who are on our prayer list, and maybe not on our prayer list, but in your mind. Uh, let's lift them up to the Lord and see what He'll do for us. Let us pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, by way of announcements, we are going to have on uh, Wednesday at 6.30 our prayer meeting. Then at 7 o'clock, we're going to have our Bible study. So we'll again be in the book of John. And uh, feel free to join us if you so choose. 6.30 prayer meeting, 7 o'clock Bible study. All right, now with reference to another aspect of worship called giving, I'll turn the chart on again. And uh, I know you've seen it before, and you'll probably see it again, but it's such a good summary of what the Bible teaches about New Testament giving. Uh, and uh, since it does teach us to not get involved with the Mosaic Law again, we uh, uh, don't tithe. Uh, nor do we what some call sacrificial giving, or I like to call it bribing God. But uh, we just give according to the New Testament. And it certainly says that if you want to give, and whether you have anything or not, it doesn't matter. You can still give in the privacy of your mind. Uh, and then, of course, uh, if you do have something to give, then the application of Second Corinthians 9, 7 Certainly is appropriate. Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, but because God loves a cheerful giver. So if you can be a cheerful giver, you bring your offering. There are plates here, there are plates at the back, there's a mail service you can avail yourself of. But only if you can do it cheerfully. So that's what the Bible teaches in terms of the New Testament and giving. So, so much for that aspect of giving. Now we're going to move to uh, an aspect of worship called music. And last week, uh, unbeknownst to us, the judge didn't appear. But he has appeared today. And Joshua sang his favorite song, The Lily of the Valley. And uh, so I told him about it and you know, I discouraged him from missing, and uh, that we had had a song just for him, and he said, well, what's wrong with him not singing again? And I said, not a daggone thing, but we got to talk to Joshua first. So Joshua has agreed. So Joshua, if you would come and sing for us, The Lily of the Valley.
have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort, in trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. The lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, he's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He all my griefs has taken, and all my sorrows borne. In temptation he's my strong and mighty tower. I have all for him forsaken, and all my idols torn. From my heart and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me, and Satan tempt me sore, Through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He will never, never leave me, nor yet forsake me here, while I live by faith and do his blessed will. A wall of fire about me, I've nothing now to fear. With his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Then sweeping up to glory to see his blessed face, where rivers of daylight shall ever roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Thank you, Joshua. All right, now we're ready for uh, our Bible study, but before we do, as is our custom, let's remember the application of 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship, certainly to give, to sing your praises, uh, and to have music. And now, Father, for our Bible study, certainly we would ask you would guide us and direct us, as we do want to study to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I did want to make one other brief announcement. <clears throat> David Hammond, our, our uh, webmaster, has made some changes to the uh, website, which are very, very helpful as far as the, the archives are concerned. Uh, the many, many, many lessons that we have from the past so that they're a lot easier to get to. So feel free to take a look at it. And if you click on archives, you can see uh, uh, basically uh, the lessons themselves organized in such a way as to make possible looking at uh, categorical studies and looking at books of the Bible that we have covered. Because we have, you know, roughly 500 of Pastor Merritt's study books and another three or 400 uh, that are in, in the archives. 
so there's just a lot of information there as well as the podcast, which we will have this lesson on the podcast within at least a day or two. And we'll have our message on the website. So uh, we're getting, you know, closely to 20,000 uh, folks joining us in some way or another. Uh, so feel free to uh, pray for our website, pray for our podcast. And now let's uh, see what we can do here with a lesson entitled The Temple. And I had uh, taught The Temple some time back. But it's actually very, very, uh, a very, very interesting study, especially if you think about it in terms of, of, um, it's, it's like the Bible. This was Israel's Bible before the Bible had uh, been published and distributed, meaning the Old Testament. So when you're in talking about 1450 BC, uh, and there's some little bit of argument about whether it's 1250 or 1450 depends on which of the the Egyptian kings you choose to to um, uh, determine these are the kings that were there when Moses was there but there's a good 2000 2500 years that are in dispute by experts egyptologists so uh Right now, we're just using, we always have used in our Doctrine of Creation, the 1450 date, as well as uh, what some of the great expositors have used, who uh, tell us that that's how long ago it was. Well, Moses provided the Old Testament, not just for Israel, but for us. But especially for Israel, it was their Bible. Uh, and uh, that's the way I think I would like to present it today. So let's just do that. Uh, first, there was a tabernacle, and then there were four temples listed in the Bible. And uh, we will look at each of those. The tabernacle was not a temple. The tabernacle served the purpose of what would later be known as a temple. And of course, Hekal. In the Hebrew means a big building. And uh, that is, of course, uh, uh, specifically several different tabernacles, biblically speaking. And, of course, there were little small temples that had been erected by the, the various Canaanites that had been found and explored. And, but uh, nothing like as what Israel got in the way of, for example... Uh, first the tabernacle, then Solomon's temple, then Zerubbabel's temple, also called Nehemiah's temple. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there will be a millennial temple. We'll get to all these eventually. All right, it served as a mobile structure which was carried during the travels of Israel. The schematic of the tabernacle will help us understand how it was used to teach Bible doctrine. And I have provided a rough uh, schematic there for you, uh, which shows you the outer court. And inside the court, you have the Holy of Holies and a holy place. And then, uh, of course, you have out there in the courtyard the golden laver and the brazen altar. So very quickly, when you think about entering the area, uh, you would come, of course, to first of all the brazen altar. And this is indicating the world. When you're out there in the courtyard, you're in the world, so to speak. And uh, you, to become a believer, you bring an animal of some sort, and it could be a great big bull, or it could be a very small animal, depending upon generally the wealth of the family. Uh, and they would come, and let's just assume for a moment you were wealthy and you bought a big old registered Angus bull, well, you're going to have to sacrifice that bull. So you're going to have to have some well-built gents, men who are able to get that animal up there on the altar, and they're going to kill the animal. They kill the animal. First of all, they inspect the animal. Make sure it's perfect. Well, that's because Christ is going to be perfect. So there's a teaching. All right, you as an unbeliever come. 
you bring your sacrifice and the sacrifice is going to be offered. Sacrifice represents Jesus Christ who will come in the future and will die for the sins of the world. And uh, they'll inspect the animal, make sure there are no ma- uh, no bugs or, or worms, etc. No blind eye, no coughing animal. Uh, that they'll put a perfect animal up on the altar, and they got to get it up there. So they get it up there, and now they probably got its legs tied. And <clears throat> these are people who are bred for this, meaning God bred them. Strong. Israeli men who would do that, just like he he bred strong Israeli singers who were outside singing, according to the scripture. And one of the songs that they sang was uh, uh, about the sacrifice and offering. Thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me, talking about Christ. And that's in the book of Hebrews, based upon what was sung. And uh, so they put that animal up there on the brazen altar, and they slit his throat. And the person bringing the, the animal had to put his head, hand on the head of the animal and watch the blood flow out of his throat. And it would be caught into a laver. Uh, and it's labeled there a golden laver. And uh, that was significant of the sins of the person being on the animal and the blood took, took care of it. And the blood was Christ's blood, which would be shed later, representing his spiritual death. So as the Bible unfolds for the Jew, there's his salvation doctrine. Now, <clears throat> after that, nobody's going to enter the Holy of Holies but a priest, and only one person is going to, not the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. The Holy Place is that out there with the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, and the table of showbread in that area. Only a priest could enter there. No layperson could enter. Uh, and there were some rules that were broken, no doubt. But uh, uh, there and then they had a door that opened and behind the door was a veil. And uh, that would enter the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest would enter there once a year. And he would enter and take the altar of incense with him. And he would also take some blood and smear it on the altar. The table of showbread represented the light of the world. There was only one light in there. And that, of course, represented Jesus Christ. And then he had a little bowl full of oil, which represented the Holy Spirit, which would go to light the various seven candles. Uh, and that would be the work of the believer uh, in the world. And then over there on the <clears throat> table of showbread, you had 12 loaves of bread. And we'll get into this more later on. But 12 loaves of bread representing logistical grace, how God provides for each and every believer the things that he needs to get him to Bible class. And... Uh, then we have, of course, the, the altar of incense, which uh, had a very special recipe that was prepared by the priest. And he would light it, and it would waft toward heaven, representing the prayers of a believer. And it was carried into the Holy of Holies through the veil once a year with the high priest who would go in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so they would go in there then, and there's your altar. And inside the altar where you can see... The things that were there, you can see the, the table to show bread. I'm sorry, not the table to show bread, the rod that budded, manna, and the, uh, the tables of the law. The law representing what Israel would break and how they had need to be covered by the ark. And the ark, of course, also had manna in it, representing provision that God provided for them and still provides. And then the rod that budded, representing the authority of Moses. And then you have above the ark, you have two angels that uh, they look like sphinxes we're told and uh, they represent two of the angels there's one missing and the one missing is devil he's gone you have two covering angels not three listed in the bible you got michael and gabriel and lucifer lucifer's gone he fell but just two are hanging over the ark and uh, they're in the holy of holies all right, so much for that just as a broad brush treatment of what went on there. But you can see how much Bible doctrine is there for Israel and the priests is to know and tell them what was going on. All right, so the following tabernacles. First of all, the Temple of Solomon, which was finished in approximately 960 or so, B.C., of course. Then the Temple of Zerubbabel, also called the Temple of Nehemiah. That's because when Nehemiah returned, he came to that temple. 
and that's where they found out things that had been written about them. They didn't know anything, because, but they dug in through some of the rubble when they returned from Babylonia, and they found, uh, uh, essence, part of the Bible. One of the things that they found was, holy smoke, pardon my expression, holy smoke, uh, we're not supposed to be marrying uh, Gentiles. And they had married Gentiles galore. And so they had uh, scripture written that says, rise up and divorce your wife. And so they had a day of divorcing wives. And it was supposed to be a very sorrowful day. We find that evidence of that in scripture because they had to get rid of their wives. And they had various Gentile wives which they weren't supposed to have married because they didn't know they weren't supposed to, supposedly. But uh, who can tell? But the point being, uh, Nehemiah is said, to, this said to be Nehemiah's temple, when in essence, Zerubbabel was the political leader that led him back to uh, roughly 500, 520, to uh, rebuild uh, at the command, of course, of the Chaldeans, uh, rebuild the temple. And they started on the temple, and if you want to read about the work that they did and how much trouble they had, the whole book of Zechariah and the whole book of Haggai, uh, is those are two prophets who were urging them finish the work because they had actually just finished the the altar and now they can worship so they went back and worked on their own homes uh, and uh, unfortunately they didn't finish the temple until 516 so you have roughly you know 530 to 516 uh, circuit dates of course but they finished Zerubbabel's temple. All right, now then we have another temple, which of course uh, you can see on page two, the temple of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, we have a doctrine of Herod, by the way, you can read about all the Herods. There's a whole lot more Herods than just Herod the Great. But uh, there are many, many Herods. But uh, Herod the Great, somewhere between 37 and 4 B.C. is when he reigned. And uh, we don't know exactly when he finished, but it's subject to question. Uh, somewhere, of course, maybe around his death, he died in 1 B.C. So uh, before that, let's say four or five years, who knows. But he completed the remodeling of Zerubbabel's temple, made it much more beautiful, uh, enlarged it. And he did this in order to, of course get favor with the Jews who were there. So Herod the Great, and we'll get in more detail as we proceed. Then there was the temple for Christ during his reign in the millennium. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, you can see, we'll see that later on. Ezekiel tells us about that when we get there. But uh, he, it's, it was much smaller. Uh, it's going to be much smaller. The one described by Ezekiel is much smaller. And it will look back at what Christ did as opposed to us looking forward. And then there's one more, the fourth one. And that is in the church age, Christ uh, is said to uh, be our temple, the temple of God, the God is. All right, I'm going to read you Second Corinthians 6, 16, where you get that uh, statement by Paul. It says, and what agreement has the temple of God with an idol? talking specifically about marrying an unbeliever. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All right, now then for a historical summary, I want to use the schematic of the tabernacle to teach the meaning of the tabernacle slash temple liturgy. Gave you a little better map there uh, from the Man of Bible program. And... Uh, uh, you can see it's very similar to what we've shown you in an easier schematic of the tabernacle uh, that is shown. Uh, and for those of you who are on the Internet watching us or the podcast, it will be in color. But uh, in deference to the treasure, I did not make colored maps for you but because uh, their copies are more expensive, of course. All right, the tabernacle was divided into three areas. A courtyard, the holy place, sanctuary, or holy of holies, that we've covered. The courtyard was a place of preparation and represented the believers in the world before salvation. 
The courtyard also represented the world in which both believers and unbelievers function side by side. Some number of believers would take advantage, of course, of the accoutrements located in the courtyard, that being the brazen altar and the golden laver. Uh, they were to serve as training aids. In other words, the Jews' early Bible. The priests used these aids to communicate Bible doctrine. All right, an unbeliever would hear the priest each of the meaning, teach the meaning of the work of Christ to come and the ritual to be followed. The participant brought a perfect sacrifice. Uh, it would not be accepted if it wasn't perfect. Again, representing Christ who would be perfect without sin. The participant offered it to the priest, if you will. And the priest would cut the throat of the animal on the brazen altar and catch the blood in the golden laver. And he would, of course, have to have his hand on the animal as each beat of the heart of the animal as he bled would represent the sins of that person. So then the animal would be butchered and sacrificed as a burnt offering. All right, and it could just be merely in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ and his family. They only, only brought a little a bird, you know, because they were poor. Uh, now then, this demonstration of positive volition toward the work of Christ, and that is Christ to come, was an act of responding to the good news of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. As many as received him to... Th- to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. So salvation took place in the courtyard just as it takes place today in the world. Now the believer is ready for his path to maturity after he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, just as in the case of the Jew who came in. Now he's ready for more Bible doctrine. And the priest can, of course, teach them Bible doctrine from time to time, not only in writing, but also, of course, uh, uh, in person. Alright, so the intake of the word under the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit back then came on certain people to do certain things, certainly on certain people who needed to know Bible doctrine. He would come on them and teach them, just as he does here today. Although we have the permanent indwelling, they didn't have the permanent. He would come upon certain people to do certain things, and he would also, of course, leave certain people who didn't do certain things. Remember, it was David himself who asked the Lord not to take his Holy Spirit from him because of certain things that he had done. All right, the holy place or sanctuary was a place where only a priest could go. Uh, This area represented a believer's world where God would provide light, doctrine, guidance, and logistical grace. The believer could not enter the holy place, only the priest. Only the priest could enter. Uh, And it was the job of the priest to communicate the meaning of three implements inside. Those three, you remember, was the lampstand, the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense, which was there except on one day a year. Okay, so it was the job then of the priest to tell them about what was going on inside. They didn't get to see it. They didn't get to go in there. Now, David, of course, violated that from time to time. Uh, one specific time, you recall, when he was running from Saul and his men needed food. The only person to eat that showbread were the priests, not David and his men. But uh, uh, he he was in need. And... Uh, God, of course, accommodated his need by providing him a sword as well as food for his men. All right, the lampstand representing Christ was, uh, he was the light of the world and that's what it represented. The table of showbread representing God's logistical grace, food, clothing, shelter, etc., transportation for us in the case of logistical grace to get us to Bible class. The altar of incense representing the sweet aroma of the believer's prayers. The Holy of Holy represented the third heaven where special mediation is performed in the throne room of God. All right, the symbolism of salvation occurs just outside the holy place where on the altar a perfect animal was sacrificed on behalf of the believer and the blood was caught and placed in the golden laver. The hands of the one bringing the animal were placed on the head of the animal. Now, the mediation mentioned in the above point, uh, 3.4, represents what was done in the holy 
of holies, and then the holy place. Holy of holies once a year, because then the priest would go in, and that's when they'd tie his ankle, you know, with the rope. Because if he went in there and he made a mistake, he'd die, and they'd have to pull him out, because nobody else could go in there. And uh, also, he's making uh, not only amends for his sins, as he goes into the altar in the holy of holy of holies and sprinkles the blood. But in addition to that, he's making amends for Israel. And that's when he came out. There was a great cheer that went up, much like an Aggie game. A great cheer. Not last night. Uh, there wasn't anybody there. But the point being, they had good sound effects. But uh, they would go out and uh, uh, have the... Uh, cheering and they would actually sing a song of praise because their sins had been taken care of. So you got two kinds of, uh, I mentioned one kind of uh, mediation, but two types of mediation. There was the annual one, then there was in the Holy of Holies uh, a daily as the bread was put out and the priests ministered inside there. And they took turns going in there as to who would do that kind of work. Alright, so the symbol, symbolism of salvation occurred just outside the holy place. And again, we've explained that and shown that in chart form for uh, page 1 as well as the next page. Alright, the perfect animal was symbolic of Jesus as the lamb without spot who would go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice. <clears throat> Let me read you first Peter 1, 18, 19, and 20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your own conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So whereas we have for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, they had representation here with basically the, the same essence. Uh, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to come and you're saved. And here are the things that represented uh, the Scripture that would follow. Alright, the blood is a picture of the spiritual death of Christ which took care of all the sins of the world past, present, and future. He came in the world not to, to uh, if you will, destroy the world, but indeed He came to, again, uh, provide salvation for all who would but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So Luke twenty two twenty. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. So Christ would come as the fulfillment of that which had been portrayed. Now, only a priest could enter the holy place just as only a believer priest can worship God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. Direct access without need of the priest would have to await the resurrection and the renting of the veil. You'll recall when Christ was on the cross and he had taken care of the sins of the world, the veil was rented. And that was something of and to itself, which was a miracle. Because that veil... Uh, would uh, uh, they tested it and a tinsel test if you will I'll call it for lack of a better term uh, a destructive test they would put two animals uh, hook them up and they would pull on the veil and if it didn't break then it was okay but if it broke of course it was rejected and a new one was was woven so uh, likewise that's uh, uh, a description of the veil has been broken it is now opened up and uh, access to the inside was made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ. So now you, now you can know uh, as much Bible doctrine as you want. You know, feed me till I want no more uh, is what the Scripture says. When you cease wanting, God quits giving. Uh, so it's it's most important for us to know about. Now we have direct access and have no need of priests. Uh, only need of what God provides in this the age of the church, pastor teachers for each and every believer. All right, in the holy place, uh, excuse me, holy place, there are three utensils: the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. And once more, the table of showbread had twelve loaves, freshly baked, and represented the provision and ever presence of God for the twelve tribes. 
and that's why the twelve. So only the priests were to eat the bread. This symbolizes how God makes provision for believers. He is always with us even when we are out of fellowship and receiving discipline. He still loves us and He's still working for us and with us. And we'll provide that which we need. Notice Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you. These are some wonderful verses, by the way. You ought to memorize them or certainly know where they are because they are certainly, they're all wonderful, by the way. But uh, I have in my life have found need, and so has Tommy. Uh, and uh, I remember one job where I was particularly disappointed in uh, and was ready to leave. She called me on the phone and read these scriptures to me, so they have special meaning for me. But let me let me read it to you. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you, to give you hope and future. And then Isaiah 30, verse 20 and 21, And though the Lord, notice who gives you something, Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. Wonderful scripture. Then Revelation three nineteen and 20 written to believers. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. And then it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Alright, uh, so you have to open the door as you well know. And, uh, it, and he's always there knocking. And that's talking to believers. Alright, the bread was placed each week to teach God's act of continually providing logistical grace to each believer. Notice Exodus 20 verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. That would be the seventh day. The Sabbath, Shabbat itself, means that He has done everything for you that can possibly be done. So now you have it. Alright, so today we are to keep every day holy, redeeming the time because what the days are evil. We live our lives a moment at a time using 1 John 1, 9 as our stabilizer. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Alright, so uh, we live those lives a moment at a time and the Bible is our doctrine. It's our manual for living, our doctrine of manual living. Uh, it is the way to live the Christian life. And again, it's a two-step price process. First of all, taking in the Word of God uh, after you have rebound. So rebound first, then taking in the Word of God. And I think Romans 12.1 and 12.2 make this clear. 12.1 tells us about rebound. 12.2 tells us about doctrine. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, some might say, well, does that say anything about rebound? Yes, it does, because you can't do this any other way. Now, I know a lot of people try. They say, oh, I'm going to quit this. Oh, I'm going to quit that. Oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to do that. And by doing that, I'm making my body a living sacrifice. Uh, and uh, some may even believe that totally, uh, that they can do that. But you can't do it, because God is perfect. But what you can do is you can name your sin back to God when the Holy Spirit shows you. That's First John 1, 9. And if you say you've not sinned, you lie. And if you say you've not sinned, you make God a liar. Read again the scripture above First John 1, 9 and below it. 1, 8 and 1, 10. <coughs> Now then, what about Bible doctrine? Well, the next verse. So you've rebounded. Now let's see what 12.2 has to say. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of the mind that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Alright, the lampstand was the only light in the tabernacle. This soul light was symbolic of Jesus as the light of the world. 
many scriptures referring to light. We have a doctrine of light on the internet, which you can certainly find under Pastor Mary's study books or elsewhere. So the lampstand was the only light in the tabernacle. The sole light was symbolic of Jesus. John eight twelve. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now when David captured the city in approximately 1000 B.C., many of the Jebusites were absorbing, excuse me, absorbed, as believing aliens. They're called aliens in Scripture as a translation to indicate they're not they're not Jewish believers, but they are uh, nonetheless Gentile believers. Let's just say uh, Israel was going along in the desert and they came upon, let's say, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Midian, Midianites, etc. And most of them they were told to kill, but there were some who wanted to join up. And then when they joined up, they got certain rights and they weren't the... the the very best rights that Israel got, but they were rights. And so we've called them, as many translators have, aliens. So the Jebusites, for example, lived in Ur Salim, which were the closest ones. They're spent off from the Amorites, which later became Jerusalem after David captured the city. It was Ur of Salim, the city of peace, and that ruler of that Jebusite city was Melchizedek. All right, David made the city the capital of his kingdom, and the capital was moved from Hebron. Remember, it's Avram who came by after he had uh, rescued Lot, and uh, he passed by the Ur of Salim, the beautiful city, Jebusite king named Melchizedek, who acquired the city by, again, uh, uh, victory. In other words, he won it by victory. And uh, so Avram... He came out to Avram, and Avram was going to pay him tithe because he had to, he, he wanted to teach you and me a lesson. In other words, he wanted to offer him tithe. Uh, and uh, he said, no, 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 no. And they argued over that a little bit. And to whom was the tithe paid? The tithe was paid to a Gentile. Why was that? Because, as we find later in the book of Hebrews, where it's explained, because Christ is going to be a king like Melchizedek. He's going to be a king by victory. He's not going to be a king by lineage. He's not going to be from the lineage of the Levites to the, I mean, Eliezer to the, I mean, Levites to Eliezer, etc., etc. Uh, he's going to be a king by victory on the cross. And it was going to be hard for them to understand that. So he had to give them a lesson from the Old Testament. And that he did. And of course, we have a doctrine that has taught that in previous times. All right, so, uh, but we have then uh, many different, uh, uh, they call them high places. Generally speaking, uh, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, uh, uh, the various ites, if you will, they didn't build temples. What they did was they went up on the hills and they did their, uh, unfortunately, their, uh, their various rituals, which usually involved all manner of the phallic cult. And, uh, but later, as time progressed, even the Israelites would build little small temples up in the northern kingdom, uh, some of which have been discovered. Uh, but the, none of the, like the four temples, the Hekau, the big buildings, small little things that they would, of course, do it, uh, naturally because uh, they couldn't make the trip all the way to Jerusalem to the big temple. So this was done quite often in the northern kingdom. That's the split, you remember, between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, Jeroboam, of course, took the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam took the southern kingdom. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was just a hotshot who had done well in Egypt as, as a, uh, working for, again, Israel. All right, now let's go on. <clears throat> in 586 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and the temple. The Jews in the main were exiled to Babylonia. Fifty years later, in 536 B.C., Cyrus, a Persian king, conquered Babylonia. And in 500 B.C., the Jews were permitted to rebuild the temple. All right, see the book of Zechariah and the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel built a smaller version of Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel was the political leader and the uh, uh, 
religious leader was Joshua. Haggai was just a prophet that had been raised up by God, as was again Zechariah, to urge them to finish that temple. That is to say, uh, the uh, Zerubbabel, as we know, Zerubbabel's temple. Alright, Persia ruled the city until 333 BC when Alexander took control. Later, Ptolemy, a Roman senator, in circa 600 BC took control of all of Palestine. And in circa 198 BC, Antiochus conquered Judea, making it a tributary to Syria. And of course, we have studied that history before. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's, it's wonderful history, uh, that gives us an idea like how in the world did uh, Rome get control of, of Israel? Well, we studied that, and I just summarized it for you. Uh, it was because they just could not get along among themselves, and so Ptolemy had an army over there in the north, and so he decided he would go down and acquire Israel for Rome. Now, later in 165 B.C., the Jews successfully revolted under the leadership of the Maccabees, consecrating Zerubbabel's temple. It was Antiochus Epiphanes who did so many terrible things that uh, the Maccabees, uh, and you can read about the Maccabees if you go to the Catholic Bible and read First and Second Maccabee and Josephus. That's the only history we really have in between the Old and the New Testament. So uh, you can, uh, excellent history books, by the way. All right, uh, Herod later modified Zerubbabel's temple, thus it became known as Herod's temple. All right, this temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, uh, and it's still destroyed. It's no longer there. There is a wall that they think behind that wall is the, is the temple itself. All right, let's go to Hebrew etymology, if you will. The principal Hebrew word for temple is hekel, as noted. Uh, it means a large building. Isaiah 39, 7, And thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Again, in roughly 600 or so B.C., it's forecasted what would happen in 597, 586, and 586, actually 606, 597, and 586 B.C. And then 1 Kings 21.1, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard or near the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. Remember Ahab and Jezebel. All right, it is often used with reference to the temple in Jerusalem being either the temple of Solomon or the temple of Herod. The word is also used of the sanctuary at Shiloh. That would be in the north, uh, in the northern kingdom, as they tried to duplicate what was done in the southern kingdom in Judah after the division of Palestine. That is to say, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Notice First Samuel 1, 9. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. You remember Hannah who wanted a child and she couldn't have a child and so she got kidded. And they made fun of her. And so finally the Lord gave her a child that was Samuel and she made a promise that if she has a child she's going to give it to the priest. And so she did to Eli and he took it into the to, to enrace the child. Uh, and uh, he, again, was uh, the great prophet. Wonderful prophet. Notice First Samuel 3, 3, the lamp, of, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and God spoke to him. He called his unique, uniquely used of God's heavenly abode. So he was told that he was going to be a prophet, and he was going to do great things, and he was going to select uh, Saul, you remember, and he did select Saul. He was Saul's biggest buddy, and uh, unfortunately Saul turned his back on him and did things he wasn't supposed to do, like instead of killing the Agag, Agag, that's just a word for an Arab prince, king, uh, he let him live, and of course, uh, sad story resulted in the death of he and Jonathan, etc. But that's another story. That was at, uh, again, with the Witch of Endor. You'll remember that story. 
All right, now let's go on Second Samuel 22, 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. All right, then Psalm eleven four. The Lord is in his holy temple. You remember that song? We used to sing it all the time in the Methodist church. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. All right, now let's look at the ultimate Hekau, or temple. We have a drawing of it in Solomon's temple. You can see how it was huge. It had thousands and thousands of animals that would be brought there. And you can also see how the uh, uh, how it, it took, by the way, approximately seven years to build it. And it was Solomon who built it. David who provided earlier uh, all of the nuts and bolts uh, that were needed for that. And they, these are listed, by the way. I mentioned this Wednesday night because I was impressed with it, how he must have had quite a logistical setting when he got all of the equipment and the and, and, and the parts, if you will. You know, you used to work in manufacturing. You know what I'm talking about. We have a huge stock room. He probably had a huge stock room of various parts necessary to build that temple. He had the schematic. He had men working on it and all of it, getting it ready for Solomon to build it because David couldn't build it because he had blood on his hands. He had killed too many people. So God said, you can't build it, but your son can build it. And Solomon did indeed build it. All right, the word Hekel was sometimes used in era of heathen temples. Notice Joel chapter 3, verse 5. But you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. All right, as contrasted to the open-air high place, the pagan temples were considered as houses or dwelling places of various deities and only secondary as places of worship. All right, at several Israelite sites, beginning with the divided monarchy, several enclosed sanctuaries have in fact been found. These sites were in the main facades located in the northern kingdom, that is to say Israel. Amos announced the worship at Beersheba and Gilgal and compared it with the temples which Jeroboam, that would have been the king of the northern kingdom, the first, Jeroboam the first, built at Dan and Bethel on the north and southern borders of his kingdom. So he actually had a larger kingdom than did Judah, but not as powerful nor as religiously accurate in terms of having the real temple. Notice Amos 5, 5, But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Again, a reference to the problems that the northern had with Assyria on a continual basis. Amos again in verse 14, chapter 8, They that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. And for those of you who have been studying with us on Wednesday night, you remember we studied the history of Samaria and we studied the history of uh, Galilee and uh, with reference to what had uh, transpired there in summary fashion, of course. The walls forming an Israelite high place 20 by 61 feet at Dan have been discovered, but no temple building has yet been located at this distant site. All right, in the Greek, there are two terms that mean temple. Uh, the first, in the now we're talking the Greek language as opposed to the Hebrew hikau. The more general is hieros, comes from the word hierus, which is the word for priest, the place of the priest, which applies to the entire temple complex with all its courts and auxiliary buildings. The more specific is the word naos, sanctuary, shrine, the chief temple building itself. All right, let's talk a little bit about Solomon's temple. It took, As I noted, I think earlier, it took approximately seven years. The building was completed in October or November of 960 B.C., requiring a total of seven and a half years. First Kings 6, 1, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Zeph, which is the second month that he 
begun to build the house of the Lord. All right, First Kings six thirty-seven and thirty-eight. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Zip, and in the eleventh year in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof and according to all the fashion of it. So was he seven years in building it. All right, the origin of this house of worship is credited to David in Chronicles chapter twenty-eight. David ordered, God ordered David to replace the tabernacle with a permanent building. Although David was forbidden to build this house because he was a warrior and his shed blood, he purchased much of the material to be uh, used in this construction of that temple. Alright, First uh, Chronicles 28.3 But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Second Samuel twenty four twenty one and Aranah said, Wherefore is my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And you can find that in First Chronicles twenty two two and twenty two three, where he prepared notice I'm going to read twenty two three as I think about the stock room. And David prepared an abundance of the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to to David. So you can just multiply that by thousands and thousands of parts that are going to be needed by Solomon when he gets ready to rebuild the temple. So David committed the task to his son Solomon Notice First Chronicles twenty two six, and he called for Solomon his son. Uh, he wanted him to build a house for the Lord. The plan of this edifice was similar to that of the tabernacle, but the dimensions were doubled, with the height triple that of the former sanctuary. The stone walls were lined with carved cedar, <clears throat> which was overlaid with gold, and the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also, the whole altar was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. And we're going to stop right there now, and we're going to have an invitation. We've had the Hebrew Bible, if you will, the temple, first the tabernacle and then the temples. Uh, we haven't mentioned, of course, the temple that was going to be in the millennium. Uh, or have we mentioned much, of course, uh, the, the temple that is your body, which is the temple of God. But in order to participate and to be the temple of God, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask that you would indeed uh, pray that the Word of God would have full effect. Paul prayed, by the way, that people who had been taught by him were asked to pray that his Word would have complete and full effect. And likewise, I so pray. So if you would pray that, by the way, because there may be those out there in computer land or podcast land or website land who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. Uh, and it's something that uh, you must do if you're going to become a, a member of God's forever family. So right where you are, of course, you can just simply tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. Uh, there is no psychological hoop that you need to jump through or you need to walk an aisle. No, you don't need to do that. You don't need to promise God I'm not going to do that particular sin again. No, you just simply have to recognize all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You know, Christ came. And he came unto his own, Israel. But his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. Once more he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Right where you are, 
whatever you might be doing. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So I'll pause for just a moment and give opportunity for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then I'll ask God's blessing upon this service this day. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study your word. Now, I would ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.